I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. In this episode, we're going to talk about a poor season for whales. Wait, 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 before our bookish listeners switch off. A Poor Season for Wales is not the title of a sports book about the Welsh rugby team's miserable 1991 year when the Wallabies walloped them 63-3. A Poor Season for Wales, Wales with an H, is Michiel Haynes's outstanding new novel. Michiel is an author, translator, and former English professor, and A Poor Season for Wales is his ninth novel. The story unfolds over two months in the seaside village of Hermanus, where Margaret Crowley, an architect, has just moved after her husband has left her for a man. Margaret has gone to Hermanus in search of a quiet, uncomplicated life, but instead she meets 24-year-old Jimmy Prinsloo Mazibuko. As their strange and stormy friendship develops, she breaks free from her suburban housewife's shackles and starts to make sense of who she really is. The book has everything, vivid imagery, beautiful descriptions, fascinating characters, gripping dialogue, understated humor, an intriguing plot, and a sharp knife hanging over it. The preamble is one hell of a hook. If you can read it and not be compelled to finish the book, then your willpower is much stronger than mine. Here's the preamble. Margaret Crowley, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 56 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. It was therefore hardly to be foreseen that in her 56th year, she would kill a man with a kitchen knife. Welcome to Amabuka Buka, Michiel. Can you please read an extract? Right, Jonathan. I'll read, in fact, the opening of the novel just after the preamble, which you've just read. So here we go. Uh, Saturday, the 10th of November, 2018. Margaret met Jimmy on the day Benji almost fell to his death. She was walking, as she did every morning, along the cliff path that ran past her house. Benji had, ever since their first walk a month before, been warily interested in the Dussies sunning themselves on the rocks, sometimes scurrying off at his approach, more often not deigning to move, having presumably by some evolutionary wisdom arrived at the insight that, given the shortness of their legs as compared to those of a large Doberman, not running was the safer option. On this day, however, a Dussie, more nervous than its fellows, took flight when it saw Benji approach, and Benji, emboldened by the animal's scampering retreat, gave chase. The dusty flung itself plumply, but with surprising agility, down one of the steep cliff faces onto a ledge below and disappeared into a crevice. Benji, his normal caution overwhelmed by some atavistic hunting instinct, followed the little creature over the top of the cliff and vanished over its edge. For a moment, Margaret stood paralyzed, thinking that Benji had plunged to his death. Then, peering over the edge, she saw him about two meters below her, cowering on a ledge, barely wide enough for him to stand on, 
with a hundred meters of rock face and roiling breakers below him. She called to him, not really thinking he could or would scramble up the sheer face, but not knowing what else to do. She had horrible free visions of the dog panicking, jumping and falling to his death in the sea below. She had to fight a rising hysteria. She felt as utterly helpless as she'd ever been in her life. And the sight of Benji trembling on the ledge filled her with terror. Trying to soothe him, she knelt on the edge of the precipice, nonsensingly promising him that she would rescue him, that he was to lie down and wait anything to keep her own panic at bay. But she was near to breaking down when a voice next to her said, What's the matter, lady? You're having a problem? She was in such a state of heightened anxiety that she did not pause to assess the probable motives of the stranger. She simply said, Oh, heavens, yes, please, please, my dog's down there. Can you help us? Let me see about that, said the stranger. Right, end of extract. Wow. Uh, thanks, Bechil. Um, One of my favorite characters is the Dussie chasing Benji. I read somewhere that you have a dog in every one of your novels. <laughs> Why is that? I do. <laughs> um, yes, my very first novel was quite autobiographical, and um, I recorded in or recalled in that an incident from my early youth when my beloved dog, uh, well, tangled with a meerkat and the local vet decided that he was a danger to the society and the dog was put down because it was thought that the meerkat might have had rabies. It later transpired that the meerkat did not have rabies and my dog had been put down unnecessarily. Um, I, I think that incident sort of twisted me for life. Perhaps may even have <laughs> set me against vets. Anyway, then uh, a friend of mine wrote to me, and you know, James could see his uh, novel uh, disgrace, which of course ends on a dog being put down. And my friend said, "I'm sick of do dogs being put down in novels. Please don't do this again." So, <laughs> Partly in deference to her, ever since then, all my dogs have survived. In fact, in my second novel, there's a dog that his owners are immigrating to Australia and they want to put him down. And my main character, who's not really a dog person, decides rather than have the dog put down, he's going to rescue the dog. So so I rescued that dog. And ever since then, well, I would have had a dog rescue again, haven't we? I mean, this is a spoiler, but Benji, in fact, does not fall to his death as you may have. Thank goodness, because I would have stopped reading if he had. <laughs> yes, well, you wouldn't get so much further into the novel. And um, yes, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a dog person, to put it mildly. And I, somehow they have crept, crawled into my novels ever since. I'm trying to think of a, a novel that didn't have a dog. There was one that was a bit problematic. I wrote a novel about the Pankhursts. But fortunately, nice. uh, Mrs. Pankhurst was given a young, a little dog by her daughter when she was ill. Now, Mrs. Pankhurst <laughs> was not a dog person, so the dog doesn't really feature very much, but he is there. <laughs> so, so there is a dog in that. And, um, yeah, I think all my other novels probably do have dogs in them. I, not all of them quite as prominent as Benji. Benji is my first Doberman. Um, 
Now, I'm a Doberman person. I've had six Dobermans. My present dog is a Doberman. So, wow. so Benji, in a way, is a, is a tribute also to the Doberman, which is a much maligned race of dogs. You know, they, they're basically pussycats in disguise, but everyone thinks they're very... <laughs> <laughs> what inspired you to write A Poor Season for Wales? <laughs> it's the first of my novels that I... Um, Start, that I started from a from a title. All I had was a title. I had people. I had Airbnb at that stage, and some guests went off to Hermanus, and they came back and they were rather amused. They said they'd met this old guy on the cliff path, and they were asking about Wales, and he said, "Oh, it's a poor season for Wales." And we just found <laughs> an, an amusing line, and we thought it was a good title for a novel. So I literally started with the title, A Poor Season for Wales. So the rest followed, you know. I mean, okay, so it's, it's more or less had to be set in Hermanus. Hermanus, in any case, is a place that I know. And, um, yeah, so I constructed the novel on that title. The book is unsettling, and at times, Jimmy really annoyed me. How did his character come about? And can you tell us a little bit about its development? Hmm. Yes, I, um, he should be annoying. He is an annoying, uh, precocious, opinionated <laughs> young man. Um, I should probably not say this on air, but he is based on someone I knew a long time ago uh, who ah. was uh, perhaps didn't turn out quite as well as Jimmy turns out. But I, I, I started then from the idea of a young man who's very bright, but with something slightly suspect about him. You don't, you don't quite get to the bottom of him. Um, so I certainly developed the character way beyond the person that I knew a long time ago. But that's where it started. And um, I, as often, I'm, I'm interested in characters that I don't really know myself. And then I explore through writing the novel, find out what what makes them tick. Obviously, I go back and I edit and so on. I hope I, I end up with a slightly more coherent notion of the character than I have at the beginning. But I start from, let's see what this character does. And that's what I did with Jimmy. And how involved do you get in their lives? You know, I wouldn't want to say that I eat, sleep, and dream my characters, but I they do sort of they are there at the back of my mind much of the time while I'm writing a novel, and um, I I can you know take my dog for a walk and, and and think about them and think well this this seems plausible, so you're involved. Not in, I don't think they dominate me, but they they certainly become as it were, companions while I'm writing a novel. So speaking of companions, and you, you, your answer can't be Benji, if you had to be in lockdown with one of the characters in A Poor Season for Wales, which one would you choose? Well, obviously I would have said Benji, but since you're not going to allow me that. Um, how about Carl, you know, Margaret's young son? Is uh, I find him easiest to get along with. He's easygoing. He has a nice sense of humor. Things don't bother him too much. He takes his mother pretty much in stride. Even uh, he's a bit worried uh, about um, this young man, Jimmy. But by and large, he's sort of you know he's he's sort of a typical young man who li likes surfing and 
I think that was probably the kind of person I would prefer to be locked down with. He's not going to get in my hair and I'm not going to get in his. Um, I think the last person I want to be locked up with is Felicity, you know, the um, the sister-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Or uh, Celia? Well, Celia would be a nightmare. I mean, she would disapprove of yeah. me. She would disapprove of everything. She would complain about the lockdown. Um, and she would get flu. She probably, in fact, attract <laughs> the virus. Uh, <laughs> in addition to writing novels, you're also an award-winning translator. I'm curious about the role of the translator. It's a big responsibility to capture the essence of the original work. Can you tell us a little bit about this awesome responsibility? Yes, of course, it's a responsibility both to the work and to the author. And, you know, the author, unlike the, the work, actually has an opinion of his own or her own. So you have to negotiate that. You, you negotiate. Obviously, you want to be as faithful as possible to the book. Uh, you know, the, the, the author is the owner of the book, and you have to, uh, you know, accept that. At the same time, um, there's often a temptation that uh, to break free slightly of the text as it stands because the translation seems to offer you something that the original didn't have just because of the difference of the two languages. I translate from Afrikaans into English. And that is perhaps where it requires some negotiation because now you're dealing also with the ego of the author quite apart from the sort of quite mm. intractable text that you may be dealing with. I'm not saying that it's <laughs> it's a battle or anything like that. I'm just saying that, yes, it's a negotiation. It's a very interesting one. Uh, and I, do, I enjoy both aspects of it. That is uh, tussling with the text and then negotiating with the author. And I've had a good relationship with almost all my authors. Uh, yeah. I mentioned that a poor season for Wales is everything. Imagery, descriptions, dialogue, characters, humor, intrigue. But that's not quite true. Because like the 1991 Welsh Street team, the one thing that the book doesn't have is good timing. A poor season for Wales was rudely interrupted by a pandemic. There haven't been any book launches, no panels on literary festivals, no talks. How have you been able to market the book? Um, I think this is my first attempt at marketing the book, thanks to you. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> that, uh, well, there, has, there was also an interview by, um, you know, that. A reporter, which I'm very grateful for, but uh, and there have been a couple of reviews in newspapers, but by and large, I've not been able to market the book. I mean, even bookstores have been closed, as you know. So yeah. I think the book is uh, festering on shelves. You know, it's as you say, very, very poor timing, um, and I can only hope that once the lockdown, lockdown, well, if it ever disappears that books will be sold again, which strikes me as one of the odder prohibitions of this lockdown. But um, yeah, no, so I've not been able to market it. It is available as an e-book. And in fact, I'm, you know, this this is the plug. Uh, I'm told that it's on special on e-books for a grand total of 70 rod. So that is how it's been marketed. I think my publishers are hoping that the, that the e-book will somehow make up somehow. 
for the fact. I, I believe some bookstores are opening up and are selling again. So, um, so let's hope that, that people can get at it. What has been your strategy for not going stir crazy during this lockdown? I've quietly gone stir crazy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and one way of going stir crazy is to write another novel, which I've done. I've just completed another novel. In fact, it, wow. it's been one of the most productive periods of my life. I would say. Because what else do you do? I um, should I'll probably also not say this on air, but I live, in fact, in a dog park. Um, <laughs> yes, why I came here, and I have been sneaking out, you know, before before sunrise and after sunset. And now, of course, it's legal, so I I, I can take uh, my dog is called Simon, by the way, not Benji. I can take Simon yeah. out. And yes, I've, that is how I've remained sane, is um, writing, r reading, perhaps not as much as I should have and as I thought I would, and trying to get as much exercise as possible. <laughs> I, d I do online mm -hmm. yoga in the morning. And um, for the rest, you know, friends of mine said, well, this is not going to make much difference to you. You've been self-isolating all these years. Anyway. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a bit reclusive. I wouldn't call myself a recluse, but I'm not terribly sociable. So I've, it hasn't bothered me that much. I, You know, I just do feel very privileged that I have a lot of space around me. I, um, you know, I have a comfortable house and... Um, I, I think being locked down with someone that you actually don't get on with must be a total nightmare in these days. And I believe that this is causing problems. So I don't have that. The lockdown has probably not affected me as adversely as many people. Who was the last person that you shook hands with? Phew. I, I literally can't remember because I, I, what I do remember is at the beginning of when things were just starting to get a bit tight. A friend of mine came to visit, and I said, I'm not going to shake your hand. Now, I must have shaken someone's hand before then, but I can't remember. The thing is, I don't shake hands very often anyway. As I say, I'm, I'm a bit reclusive, and I'm not a great handshaker. So, <laughs> so sorry, I can't, I can't answer that question. What's the one thing you, that you won't take for granted again when this lockdown is eventually over? That's also a very interesting question. It's um, well, yeah, it's just being able to go for a walk any time of the day because that's really my that's my days. I I read, I write, and I walk. So and now I can only walk at certain times of the day. So I I won't take that for granted ever again. Um, uh, what else? Um, oh. Of course, being able to open a bottle of wine, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that is one thing that I will never take for granted again. Okay. And now for sound effects, Rorschach test. Uh, that sounds terrifying, but uh, right. Uh, well, that's a very noisy waterfall or otherwise a defective toilet. <laughs> Oh, Lord, that takes me back to the army. That's not quite the Revali, but certainly it's, it's, it's a very urgent call to arms. Hello. Oh, 
Well, that sounds absolutely forlorn. It sounds like an animal in agony, but it might just be a whale. But I, 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 thought, <laughs> I thought whales sounded more cheerful. <laughs> they were saying to each other, not sort of, I mean, that's, that is really a cry for help. I'm, It's a very indecisive sort of tapping, almost like someone who is trying to compose a poem on a wooden typewriter. <laughs> well, <laughs> that is me waking up in the morning, or anyone waking up in the morning, uh, facing a quite a day that you're not really looking forward to, saying, oh, Lord, must I really get up now and go and do this? <laughs> A Poor Season for Wales is a fantastic book which you will devour in one sitting. So do yourself a favor and find a bookstore and get the book. Thank you, Michiel. And thank you for listening to this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. I'm a Booker Booker is brought to you live from the lockdown and produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews. I'm a Booker. I'm a Booker. I'm a Booker Booker. I'm a booker, 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 booker. I'm a booker.